Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today we have the pleasure of talking to and learning from NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory astrobiologist Dr. Scott Pearl. Alongside Dr. Lori Barge, Scott is one of the co-principal investigators, or PIs, of JPL's Origins and Habitability Laboratory, a team of scientists studying the origin of life, how life survives in extreme environments, and ways of detecting biological processes in the solar system and beyond. Scott is also a lifelong Trekkie, so we'll begin our conversation today by geeking out a little bit about Star Trek Picard's final season and our mutual love of Star Trek starships. Then we'll dive deep into the science of biosignatures and how Scott and his lab are trying to lay the groundwork for seeking out new life in the universe. Engage. Dr. Scott Pearl, welcome to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Thank you for having me, Mike. We've known each other for a while now. I think we first discussed having you on the podcast in 2019 when we crossed paths at the Extreme Solar Systems Conference in Iceland. So it's great to finally have you on board. Definitely. It took long enough, but happy to be here. Yeah, well, I think it was good that we waited because we got to, you know, experience a lot of new Star Trek between then and now. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about, both science-wise and in terms of Star Trek. So let's just begin with the Star Trek. I know that you're a huge Trekkie. Uh, What was your first contact with Star Trek and how has your relationship to the show sort of evolved over the years? Yeah, so so in real time, Encounter at Farpoint came out my first week of kindergarten. Uh, So it was 1987, and the last episode, All Good Things, came out at the end of sixth grade graduation in terms of public school, grade school. So in terms of really being raised by those seven years, and so I guess during Star Trek Picard, whenever there was a reference to something happening 35 years previously, I guess both in terms of real time, but also my own growth and kind of development that both followed that. But seeing the characters dive a little deeper in terms of their own relationships, but also having the story properly close and so it was it was really nice to see them really harness not just you know it's not just fan service in terms of us being familiar with the characters but knowing how they would have evolved as human beings in real life yeah yeah that must be amazing i don't have that strong of a connection to the next generation the first episode of star trek that i ever watched was actually i think like a seventh season next generation episode uh and then i i really grew up with voyager so i sort of like watched that one um and if they ever did a you know the equivalent of uh what they did for picard for janeway or star trek voyager i'm sure that i would feel everything that you're feeling but that's so amazing to have literally grown up with the show from kindergarten through sixth grade um and then i'm sure that you know you followed the rest of the star trek series series mm-hmm. after that yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you have a favorite series or is it tng so i really like tng i probably equally like d space nine both in terms of that own character development but being able to show not just the federation with regard to how how it's all paradise in terms of next gen and how I, you know th- that that was the 
the kind of ideal situation and being able to solve problems every week and all of that. But, you know, there was a seven year message that you got at the end, whereas I think DSpace 9, you received multiple versions of those messages through the years. And so having having the villains from DSpace 9 play a role in terms of Picard, and, you know, I, I really enjoy and, and really appreciate when the entire universe and features of, of each series comes into each other in terms of overlaps, in terms of guest appearances and all of that. Not not done for you know for the sake of doing it, but that it means well for the story. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought it was very natural. I mean, you know, it, like TNG overlapped with DS9 so mm-hmm. much and, and and same with DS9 and Voyager. So it really did feel natural to me to, of course, have the changelings as one of the villains of this season, uh, the aftermath of the Dominion War. They had that great backstory with uh, Vatic, I believe was her name, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and how she was essentially tortured in a little test tube as a changeling during the war. And yeah, having Seven of Nine and Tuvok show up. Again, it, it doesn't feel forced at all. It's just like, oh yeah, all yeah. of these people are part of the same universe in the same time period so you know star trek picard just came to an end literally days ago in terms of when we're, re- we're recording this podcast um i i know you've caught up with the show tell me your thoughts on picard as a whole series and then tell me about how it felt to watch that finale there are the expectations that you have for your characters and sometimes not really in star trek but but sometimes in other series there's the the need for not a need, but folks think that that there's a need for a shock value to do something to the character that, or at least have the character do something that's out of character. And when you're telling a story like this, especially with a huge fan base that would pick up if something doesn't make sense with that character's evolution, or if it's something that there's not a clear kind of emotional line of sight that would make sense for them to go forward, it does stand out or doesn't feel you know proper or pulls you out of the story, right? So in this case, I wasn't really concerned. And and, and that mm. I think, or at least in this episode, I wasn't really concerned because, you know, I, I was afraid in terms of Patrick Stewart's character for a while, Android or not. You know, I wanted everyone to to live through the day and to go back to their post-vineyard lives or post-peaceful <laughs> lives, right? Yeah. And so so it's something that that like everyone found not what they were looking for, but as they evolve, you know, at their new present. And so being torn away from that, or at least if they were being torn away from that, not really knowing how much they've lived in that life, like Worf being a pacifist now, like, like, and obviously his time in terms of captain of the Enterprise E, that's something I would really, really love to see, both mm-hmm. to what happened to the ship, um, him being <laughs> captain, right? That's that's a huge deal to, yeah. to know that he finally was captain. That's mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> I think they did such a good job heightening the tension in that very last episode, really making me scared that somebody wasn't going to come out of that alive, right? The Mm -hmm. looks that they gave each other, the goodbyes that they said, because I guess from those characters' points of view, they didn't know that they were going to come out. Like Worf said, I I, I was beginning to fear that we we would (laughs) actually survive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so as somebody who's, you know, grew up with TNG and um, has followed Star Trek all of his life, was there like a particular moment in Star Trek Picard that really, really got to you? So Q is always a favorite character of mine. Mm, yeah. And I didn't expect, you know, in terms of the season two finale, that was a proper close to what would have been in, like an infinite story arc if you were to actually think of the whole continuum. But there was never any discussion of, of how he or his species were finally dying, or at least now that, that they were dying. But, you know, him 
and his comments in terms of Jack Crusher, where, you know, having humanity think so linear and mm -hmm. it made sense because, you know, in terms of, of that version of him dying or whatever it was, but, you know, something being able to talk to the next, next generation and all of that and like, you know, have a new trial. One of the things that really sunk in for me, at least, was the fact that the seven years of next gen was allowing the Enterprise D crew to not evolve to a certain state of thinking, but even the actual consideration of that state of thinking to show that they that the entire species could evolve. They were the spokespeople, Picard specifically, um, were the spokespeople for all the species. So having it be where that is reflective of where humanity is in that place and time and place being all over the galaxy in terms of the, the alpha and beta quadrants, or I guess alpha and gamma quadrants. But it's something that seeing like what would it be next, right? What, mm -hmm. you know, and clearly Star Trek since the 60s has always, you know, followed social cues. And it's something that being able to emulate or kind of reflect what where our society is right now, what would have the challenges been in, you know, in terms of 1987? You know, I'm not sure if they knew the ending in terms of all good things, you know, seven years previously, mm -hmm. but I'm assuming with a lot of the same folks at the helm now, literally, it's something that they would know, like, what is the next phase of this trial for humanity? And so, but slash, what are we as a species, on, as in terms of our own planet going through, that, that that would make sense to reflect that? Oh, that's really interesting. I never really thought about that. You know, like you said, Star Trek does try to reflect current times and current issues, just placing them in, you know, a far-flung future out in space. But I never really made that connection specifically to the idea of Q putting humanity on trial through his relationship with Picard. That's so cool that you saw that connection to what he might be up to with Jack Crusher going forward if this storyline were to continue. I think Terry Metalis, the showrunner for Star Trek Picard, has spoken quite vocally about wanting to continue this story in yeah. terms of uh, what he calls Star Trek Legacy. Star Trek Legacy, yeah. yeah I actually yeah. hashtagged that today. <laughs> nice. Oh my goodness. I'm such a fan of that idea. I, yeah, yeah. I want that to happen. I'd love to see more love for the DS9 characters, of course, coming mm -hmm. back. Um, more I would, of the I would love to characters. see Cisco. Oh my yeah, seeing, goodness, yeah. Seeing Cisco back, seeing Avery Brooks come back would be amazing. It's been around 30 years, maybe 28, 30 years since Deep Space Nine. So we've lost some of the actors from that series, unfortunately, but being able to see where, where the others have left off, uh, something could be done. And now in terms of the new, you know, not new movies, but there's a new Section 31 movie that's being mm -hmm. planned. And so if they can tell the story in, in almost like a short mini series or, or a kind of one season arc, but the, I guess the fan base in this case, this is how how Strange New Worlds came about, right? This was this was the, the kind of fan base from the from the season two Discovery that brought Pike and and that version of Enterprise back. So I mean, I'm happy they listened. It's important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the the great things about the Star Trek franchise is the producers, the writers, the actors too are all very um, into fan engagement, and uh, we can, to some degree, influence yeah. the future of Star Trek, which feels really, really wonderful. Um, we can try. We, we can try, right? Um, it seems to have worked for Strange New Worlds, like you said. So who knows? Maybe this one too. I want to return just to the idea of Q putting humanity on trial and what you think the parallel is for Earth and humanity today. With regard to long-term success 
envision versus what we can see in our very short term and also short I guess kind of time frame on this planet. So obviously with regard to how our actions can have long-term consequences and influences for our world. And so having it be where I think Star Trek tried this a little bit with regard to warp drive tearing the the subspace fabric. This is the warp yeah. five limit, right? That was never talked about again. Obviously, you know, you can assume that they had some kind of engine modification to to reduce the pollution of space. But something mm-hmm. that that would make sense, I would think, that parallels what we're going on now. You know, we're we're in a realm in this case where being able to show where your information sources are and what the actual data for our own planet, what it means for as for our near-term future and then, you know, kind of long-term future. And so if you were to think of the lessons or like what the Star Trek version of humanity has learned, you know, obviously since the, you know, since 2063, clearly they've learned from our, our current mistakes. And so what would be something that they've taken for granted or that they don't know, or they have to like, again, in terms of next generation, that was something where everyone was the ideal version of, of that character. And in terms of the episodes being able to to show that kind of character development, if there was an issue or some kind of you know backstory that we got to to really learn about, um, it was either done through a character driven episode that was standalone to a certain degree. Sometimes, like like in terms of um, in the pale moonlight, in terms of Cisco's, you know that's that's one of my favorite episodes because you know yeah. you're you know his character before that, you know his character after that, and if you didn't watch the episode, they're the same. But you have the ideal of what he had to go through in that one episode. And it's something that, you know, weighing his own morals for the good of the many, right? So so it's something that I just kind of go back on what that would be. You know, the good of the many for our species right now is obviously something that that those characters, they've done that. That's fine. So whatever it would be for, for our current world, mapping that to something that makes sense for the future of us, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of the 25th century, 24th century. I would really love if Legacy or, or any future series would stay actually in this time frame. I, I really, you know, this is the middle in terms of Discovery's 32nd century and yeah. in terms of Kirk and Pike. This is the present, right? And so mm-hmm. I would I would love if we stayed here for a few of our generations. <laughs> totally, totally. I love how you phrased that, that, you know, Pike is the past, and discoveries the future, and this is the present, because that's always how I've felt about the TNG era of Star Trek. Is like that's that's my era of Star Trek. That's where when I envision myself in Star Trek, that's where I am. Not you know back with Captain Archer and Enterprise or Captain Kirk, uh, you know, gallivanting across the galaxy with Spock. Uh, but it's really that like late twenty fourth century, I guess now early twenty fifth century. Yeah. Speaking of the twenty fifth century, um, I know that you're a Star Trek online player. Um, so what was your reaction? Action to seeing so many Star Trek Online spacecraft in Star Trek Picard, especially the Enterprise F in the last two episodes. Yeah, I would love to play Star Trek Online more. I don't have enough time, but I. Oh, me I, too. I, when, me too. When, yeah, when I like when I do get back into it, it's a little bit of overwhelming feeling because of how much I've missed. But um, I paid for a lifetime subscription back in 2008, so I'm making <laughs> sure that I use it as much as I can for the rest yeah. of my life. Yeah, so I am a huge, huge fan of Star Trek Starship classes. Mm-hmm. And 
I have a grade school notebook <laughs> that has <laughs> that has pages and pages of me drawing what the ship classes look like from above. Mm -hmm. They're not very good at all, but it's enough where you can you know tell the differences. And so seeing it finally go you know from an online component to something that in terms of CGI, which you couldn't do with models back in the day, because in terms of kit bashing and all of that stuff, you you had to have a physical thing in the studio. Now mm -hmm. it's you know. It's been CGI for quite a while, but in terms of, <laughs> of all of that, yeah. So I, I love the fact that you went from, you know, folks, because like the Odyssey class, right? That, mm -hmm. you know, someone submitted that design in some CAD thing or, you know, whatever they did right. online to, you know, to make it where it's a 3D visualization that went to the video game and then back now into here. And I think it's pretty nice because, you know, in my, in my world or in my head, Star Trek Online is in a certain you know, time frame. Star Trek Picard is is just, I think, after that. Yeah, I think, or maybe before that. I forget exactly when, but there is some overlap. And so if you were to respect the overlap, you'd start these things in parallel, but not conflicting with those storylines. And so uh, I was happy that, you know, I would have loved to see more of the Enterprise F. That that ship is beautiful, right? Yeah. And, oh, and, so beautiful. The next time I get back into Star Trek Online, I, I haven't been back since that ship was available. But the first thing I'm doing is making a version in terms of the Odyssey class, <laughs> a version of that that I can call my own. But uh, I'm happy that they went to the G because now it's up to Star Trek Online to not go far enough ahead. Or if they do, <laughs> to have that be part of their storyline. But, you know, canon, as you probably like really respect as well, canon's important. Trying to explain that to you know to folks that you are talking about a science fiction show, correct? And it's yes, that's we are, but <laughs> canon's important. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah. And I share your love for Star Trek Starship classes. I mean, uh, I did you ever collect those micro machines as a kid? The little yeah. My third grade class presentation was about my micro machine collection. I just brought them into class and just like talked about each one of them. <laughs> it was so good. I, no, no, I I really wish. So um, there were the three. This is this is too much detail, but so there were three micro. I guess micro machine boxes. You know, sets one, two, and three that had all of them in one. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember as a kid going to Toys R Us, and they were too expensive. And so um, I, I never I, I would have loved because because the set three had the all good things triple nacelle Enterprise D up on the top right. I never and, had that one. Yeah, not, neither did I. Um, and so uh, now, if you go online, they are very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was what was very expensive in the I guess early nineties is is kind of peanuts compared to what they're quote unquote worth right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's uh, make sure we build up our Eagle Moss collections now so yeah. that we can sell those for thousands of dollars later on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now that we've covered a little bit of your Star Trek background, Scott, let's talk about your journey as a scientist. I know you're really big into kind of dispelling certain myths about academia and what the day-to-day -day of a scientist looks like and what it means to have like made it at NASA. So, uh, Scott, would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So I've been a research scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for about 12 years now. And so when I started my career, it was well before JPL in terms of my own experience with Mars rover missions. So in a nutshell, um, I, I got involved on the Mars Exploration Rover mission in 2004 while I was an undergraduate. And so being able to start essentially undergraduate research and 
essentially finding my place in terms of where I thought that I could actually contribute the most. And so when I first started, I was essentially trained as a Mars sedimentologist. And so for several years, I knew more about Mars sedimentology than Earth. And, and obviously in terms of Earth having plate tectonics and Mars being essentially a series of closed basin lake systems all across the planet, there are different dynamics when it comes to the clustering environments, environments that are modified or formed in terms of fluvial processes from, from water. So with regard to, to that whole time frame, going into J-Pillar is, you know, kind of thinking about as a scientist, where could I contribute the most? Where's the passion going to be for the next few kind of decades in this case? And so being able to balance, as, as you said, the day-to-day. -day. So, so what does a scientist do in, in terms of their own daily life? And so I co-lead a research laboratory. This is the JPL Origins and Habitability Lab. And so the part of the lab that I lead involves geomicrobiology and habitability assessments of life in extreme environments. So when you're talking about extreme environments on Earth, you're talking about certain kinds of ecologies and microbiomes that are compared to, let's say, the oceans or let's say other I guess, kind of average environments, if you will. There's some kind of adaptation process or processes that life has formed to live in those environments. And so this gained popularity around the time that I first started doing research when I was in Stony Brook. This was looking at very salty environments where you had essentially hypersaline brines, waters that are, are very, very salty. And so on Earth, we have halophiles. These are salt-loving and salt-tolerant bacteria and archaea that thrive in these kind of environments in this case. And so the overlaps between these environments here on Earth, as well as Mars subsurface environments and ancient Mars settings when you had stable water, but also the icy worlds, Europa and Enceladus and others, where you have essentially landlocked systems where the fluid that's there right now or was there in terms of, of the ancient past, these systems are all much higher in salinity than it is in terms of our own oceans. So being able to both propagate and transpose uh, how life survives in environments here on Earth bodes well to understand what the habitability and astrobiology features would be on these planets and moons. I'm also a planetary scientist, astrobiologist, but we can't assume that our entire audience is familiar with these uh, concepts. So let's just run through a couple of definitions first before we move on deeper into the science. So Scott, could you tell me what the definition of habitability is? Because that obviously is a huge part of what you do as the co-PI for the Origins and Habitability Laboratory. And then also a lot of your work is focused on biosignatures. So if you could also define what a biosignature is for us, just those two words, habitability and biosignatures, and then we'll move on into some of the more juicy things. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so habitability is essentially the metrics in which life can thrive in some environment. With regard to biosignatures, if, if you had life thriving in some environment, you can think of the biosignatures as the blood, sweat, and tears of, of those microorganisms. <laughs> That's the best definition of a biosignature I've ever heard. That's really? Great. I love nice. it. The okay. blood, sweat, and tears. They're, the they're working very, they're working very hard to survive. But then once you start working hard, you know things become easier, just like them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. So I know that one of your main focuses is on trying to understand the interwoven relationship between biology and geology. 
as you mentioned, you got your start in research thinking about Martian sediments, and uh, now you you know you lead this laboratory where a lot of microbes are, I guess, grown in in different kinds of extreme environments. You also go out to the field to get to know uh, how those adaptations work in real life out there. Um, in the scientific journal Astrobiology in 2021, you and your colleagues propose a geobiology-driven nomenclature for astrobiology observations. Tell me a little bit about why it's so important to understand geology in our quest to understand life in the universe. Definitely, yeah. So when we're talking about life in these extreme environments, and, and we'll kind of just stay on the salt uh, here for, you know, both for brines and salt minerals. So the environment that life is living in provides both the nutrients for that life, but with regard to both the evolution and also adaptation to what is in that environment. So something in terms of Darwinism of cells is how, how we can kind of, I just kind of envision it where the strongest of a certain species the way that it survives is because the stresses on that environment impact it the least. Mm. And so being able to, to know that when you have a cellular organism or, or in terms of actual species that are in these environments, the way that, that life adapts, it will essentially build up both proteins and genes to adapt to what is stressing those systems from life's point of view. And so it passes on those same adaptation strategies to future generations. And so typically those future generations can do it faster and better. And so there's a fitness function. How, how good can it perform its metabolic processes in those environments will get better and better as each generation goes on, just like how, how we learned from our previous generations, just mm -hmm. like on Star Trek. Um, <laughs> and so with regard to being able to exploit the blood, sweat, and tears to understand if life is living inside a very salty brine system, all of the species that are present in that system should have some fitness function of sodium filtering, of salt filtering, mm. right? So the classes of both species and cells that have that ability are halophiles. And so these kind of environments can be transposed from our Earth extreme environments to, you know, both to Mars as well as the Martian subsurface. Uh, this can also be then applied to Europa and Enceladus. Both of those ocean worlds have subglacial, I guess, oceans in this case that are underneath the ice sheets. And so, you know, those waters being very salty in general, the same metrics that you would apply to search for life in terms of the deep Martian subsurface, you can apply those for for any kind of plume material for the ocean worlds, if you were to send any lander onto the ocean worlds, being able to dig in terms of the ice to get down to areas where you might have trapped fluids. And so a large part of what I do involves brine systems where, where mm. you have fluids that are essentially in these closed basin features on Earth and also that were once on Mars. In terms of the ocean worlds, these are cryobrines. So, so you've depressed the freezing point but the brines themselves still provide a good metric uh, to preserve life. Cool. So is it basically, you know, the broad brush idea is that by going out to find extremophiles here on Earth, like halophiles living in very salty environments, we're essentially like practicing the techniques and the understanding that we would need to find life in similar kinds of environments on Mars, Europa, or Enceladus. Is that the main idea? Yeah. So something that should fall along with this is 
the same blood, sweat, and tears that I was talking about for Earth, some of that might make sense for certain ecosystems outside of Earth, and some of it won't. Okay. So going back to the evolution of life, right? We we know that life evolved on our planet. So in terms of our own evolution, I'm talking about only microbial life. So if you were to look at ancient proteins or ancient features on our own planet, there are some features that look very, very similar to what is happening now, or at least what is found inside cells now, to what it was hundreds of millions of years ago. So you can't really get a good idea of how old something is based on some of these blood, sweat, and tear metrics in this case. Mm. And so being able to show what might be commonplace for all these habitable settings on Mars, Europa, and Enceladus, we tend to look at things that are agnostic between certain habitable environments. And so how Mm. far back in our evolutionary tree of life for Earth do you go to understand, well, surely at, at the base of our tree of life, is that something that would be commonplace for all habitable environments in our solar system? And if not, can you go even further back? And if, and if it's something where making the measurement of something that is truly biological, you're measuring features of what's, of what's inside a cell. Now, the compartment of a cell might be enough where, where surely this is a very efficient use of all the mechanisms inside this cell. So the compartment might be its own agnostic biosignature. But when we're probing what's inside it, right? The very first thing, if we ever find a sign of life in terms of extant life, in terms of life that's present right now in these systems, the very first thing, I guess, after us showing that it is indeed not any contamination and something that is authogenic to the environment, something that is that is only in this environment, the very next question is going to be, well, what is it? Question mm-hmm. mark. Right. <laughs> right. And how can you build a measurement on something that is in family? with what evolution on on our planet has yielded, but not that. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's actually very profound. So what you're doing is sampling a ton of life in space and in time on Earth. You know, you talked about this historical aspect to it too, where you're trying to distill what it means to be alive down to essentially its universal properties, what you might therefore expect life on an alien world that had a completely different origin and evolution to still have so that we could recognize it as life. Yeah. Now, you talked about thinking about extant life. You also write in your paper that the burden of proof needed for validating a second sign of life in our solar system is significantly higher for ancient or extinct life than active or extant life. And that makes a lot of sense to me, right? Finding a signal of a, a squiggling, you know, bacterium or, you know, wriggling gach or <laughs> just like a, a humanoid running across the landscape, that's easy yeah. to spot and point to. But finding traces of a fossilized life form that's been long dead is a lot harder. So Scott, in your expectation or just your imaginations, what does it look like to find actual proof of very ancient life, say on Mars? Yeah. So, and that's, and that's a great question because it's something that all the Mars rover missions up until now, this is MSL, this is Mars 2020. They are in different regions of Mars, but If you were to look at all of the regions on Mars that we've explored with all the recent rover missions, these are features where there likely is no signs of present life right now on the surface. And so you are stuck by design in terms of what would be an ancient biosignature. And so there is a, 
I guess, kind of countdown, if you will, once you go from the extant to the extinct time frame, where your time frame of what is preserved over geologic time. So something that, that we think about often is what is your time zero? What is your initial preservation metric of something that is biological? And if you were to trace the method of preservation, how those cells, how those proteins, how those nucleic acids, or things that are like nucleic acids or things that are like proteins, not necessarily those specifically, but they're a very good metric because that's what we have here on Earth. If you were to compartmentalize them in, in those cells and then preserve that line of evidence, what would last over geologic time? And something that we do a lot on Earth that, that sometimes is helpful and sometimes isn't is we'll go to the oldest features on Earth that plate tectonics and our water cycle on our own planet, where it hasn't physically or chemically eroded those features over, over our own geologic time. We'll go to those very, very old places and attempt to show what's been preserved since the age of the thing that we're looking at. Now, this runs into a, a ton of issues a lot of the time because these are features that are exposed to our own atmosphere for the mm. amount of time that they've been around. So you're almost shooting yourself in the foot a little bit when you <laughs> look at these features because trying to tease out what is, again, orthogenic with respect to time, what has been there and, and, and unaltered since the beginning of the sample you're looking at to removing modern contamination. And so the planetary problem, or I guess the planetary version of that problem is when we bring these instruments to other worlds, we're bringing pieces of our own ecosystem with us potentially. And so being able to even tease out, you know, if we were to find DNA on Mars on the surface right now, would that be enough to say that, oh, life evolved on Mars separately from Earth and it just so happened to, to get these kind of nucleic acids that are very similar to our own current nucleic acid array on our own planet? To me, that that's a false positive. Right, because um, it's more likely that it just hitched a ride on yeah. our spacecraft and then we found our own life all the way on Mars. <laughs> yeah. So we must be very careful both for the terrestrial analog experiments for Mars, for Europa, for Enceladus, replicating what environments we can in the lab, but truly being able to know what our future bio burden is for these missions, but also creating both the questions as well as the actual design of experiments. So if we were to get a result, the nature of the result, the volume of the measurement, the medium in which that sampler, that measurement exists, is it in a salt crystal? Is it in something that that ancient Mars water touched and, and has preserved over the last three and a half billion years? Designing these experiments in such a way where if and when we get results, they're meaningful. So basically, you're calling for an interdisciplinary kind of effort to raise the standard of evidence for biosignature detection. That's what I'm hearing, at least. It's that, you know, you're saying that, you know, it's not easy to find life on Mars, especially ancient life. So you've got to be very careful, document everything, make sure you have enough of your sample and know what you're actually doing with it um, <laughs> before you can say anything as grand as we've found evidence of alien life on another world. That's fair. Yeah. And, and it's something that, you know, something that I'm leading in a few months is actually a, a KISS study down at Caltech. And, and the purpose of the study, it's entitled The Biology of Biosignature Validation. This is essentially looking back at the framework that, that you talked about before, 
and seeing how we can update what our current mission paradigm would be such that we go from just life detection as we're doing now to actual biological validation of extent and extinct life. And as you mentioned before, it's way easier if it's life that's present right now. It's a lot more difficult if you're in the ancient biosignature realm. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to find out what that KISS study determines. KISS, of course, is an acronym for the Keck Institute for Space Studies, and they're uh, located on the Caltech campus just uh, across town from JPL where you work. Um, I imagine that at that study, you will have to bridge a lot of gaps between different disciplines. In fact, in that 2021 paper that um, we were talking about, you also have this quote that the best way forward for astrobiology is to integrate planetary geology with terrestrial microbiology so that the communities, meaning the communities of scientists, understand how each discipline formulates the research questions. And uh, so you yourself throughout your career have stood at this intersection between two giant scientific disciplines, biology and geology. And I imagine that there are enormous challenges to getting two disparate scientific communities to actually talk well with one another. Tell me, how do you overcome those challenges? Do you sort of have to play like Picard in some scenarios doing like some negotiations or diplomacy for scientists? <laughs> To a certain degree, yeah. Um, making sure that everyone feels that they're part of all of our story in this case, like the actual group effort, but not for the sake of just doing that, but making sure that everyone understands how meaningful everyone else's contribution can be or mm -hmm. should be, right? And so we're all in this together in terms of a team and as well as a scientific community. And so the two worlds in terms of microbiology, as well as planetary geology. Like I mentioned before, I was I was raised as a planetary geologist in terms of my initial career. So the question set that I, not left, but the question set that I concluded my original research paradigm in couldn't be answered with just planetary geology. You know, not that I exhausted that, but it was something that the questions that I had were now in a different realm. And so, I kind of naturally came into to both worlds because I was curious about not what the next steps were, but what I was curious about became my next steps. And so it's something that very organically, and that's no pun intended, very <laughs> organically, the, the way that that happened was something where if I want to answer this next set of questions, I'm going to have to up my own game to really be able to bring what I would be learning in the future back to what I started. I think that's the process for any scientist is being able to not just take yourself out of the problem, but but understand from an analytical and a and a kind of environmental view is can the questions that I'm asking be answered with my current tool set? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, you dive a little bit deeper or maybe a lot deeper to what is the actual measurement that I'm able to then ascertain can fulfill or start to fulfill that answer and is the measurement that i'm looking at or the series of measurements is this over time is this multiple samples right we're getting back a slew of mars sample return samples mm -hmm. and they are all being taken from areas where you had fluvial activity water rock and water mineral interactions and so when you're looking you know do you treat all the samples the same if you treat them differently where you got them from plays a huge role in how you treat them. Do you have enough sample in your in your sample tube to make an analysis back on Earth? 
you know, these are questions that bode very well for future mission operations, but also any experiments that we do on those future samples. I really like what you said about your own trajectory and how you started off in one field, but then realized that in order to chase the scientific questions that pulled at you the most, you needed to learn a completely different field. And that principle of being a lifelong learner and that as a scientist, we're constantly learning new things, deepening our knowledge about things where we recognize we have gaps is is really inspiring. I, I really like that. And in fact, you know, you've dove into microbiology so much that I know that you're also doing some really groundbreaking work on microbial pigments as mm -hmm. biosignatures, sort of like the colors that different microbes have because they absorb and reflect light differently based on whatever photosynthetic processes they're running. And you even tie some of this into atmospheric chemistry, which is a little bit more in my realm of things. I'd love to hear just a little bit about what you're doing with microbial photopigments, Scott. Yeah, definitely. And actually, that first extreme solar system workshop that we first met at, part of that was was that initial line of work. How much of of life in some surface of some exoplanet, how much would you need to actually impact the atmosphere such that you see it from some telescope? Mm -hmm. So in terms of microbial pigments, this work started nearly a decade ago in terms of modern pigments in this case, probably, probably about 15 years ago, actually, now. We're looking at how halophiles, the same salt-loving or salt-tolerant life that I mentioned earlier, how they interact with, with UVA and UVB on our own planet. And so the idea of life adapting to solar flux, how much sunlight are you getting in your brine system or in your salt mineral? Eventually, if the stresses aren't too much, those halophilic microorganisms will build up a tolerance via secretion of these microbial pigments. And so one of the main pigments is called beta carotene, the same beta carotene chemically that's found in carrots, mm. right? And so granted, very, very different applications. Uh, one is delicious. One is good for field work. It's something, <laughs> that, it's something that, that bodes well because the pigments themselves, you know, all pigments are colors, but not all colors are actually pigments. Okay. And so it's something yeah. that, that like, you know, in terms of avoiding false positives, right? So the physical biosignature of a true pigment is something that its actual gradient within these environments, you can get an idea of where life was most prominent. The chemical biomarker of those colors is unique to the adaptation process or processes of those organisms. So if you look at pigments, let's say, for example, in the Great Salt Lake, we published a book on this in 2019 or 2020. And the last chapter of that book is actually the first astrobiology chapter of the first Great Salt Lake book. So, so it's a good bunch of firsts in one publication. Nice. Um, so, so those modern pigments in this case are features that are interacting with a seasonal environment, right? All four seasons exist in the Great Salt Lake region. Obviously, you'll get colder and warmer temperatures, more or less sunlight through the year. If you're in a desert environment, the solar flux is much higher and for longer periods of the year. So you're impacting the cellular communities that are that are preserved inside desert environments, if they're there at all, and you're giving them a much faster and higher chance to adapt. So over geologic time or the status quo, if you're looking at modern pigments in, in some desert environments versus modern pigments 
in terms of seasonal environments, the ones that are in the desert are going to be a deep, deep purple and, and deep pink and deep reds. And this bodes well for understanding the volume of life in these systems, but how much they had to work to adapt to where they currently are. So for my last question, I want to bring Star Trek back into the discussion full force, because I really think that your work is basically pioneering the techniques and the framework and the technology that is needed to build a future tricorder, basically, to scan for biosigns, right? Uh, you know, in Star Trek, we have our characters very quickly just whipping out this marvelous machine and saying there's a biosign 20 kilometers ahead or something like that. It does something, but we don't know what. So in your head canon, as an astrobiologist who studies how to look for life elsewhere in the universe, what does a tricorder actually do? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, first of all, if we can get one of those on any rover, lander, or orbiter, that would be amazing. Um, <laughs> so some time travel would have to be involved. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I work with a lot of Raman spectroscopy. So so Raman, obviously, is the name of that technique, and it vibrates molecules in any solid or, or fluid system. And the molecules in that system can be very, very small in terms of the volume that you're vibrating. but it both requires that that the molecules are there to begin with to vibrate. Now, you know, cars now have kind of cameras and, and like indication systems of where other vehicles are and get little schematics of a, of a van versus a sedan versus a motorcycle or whatever. There's some radar or some, some kind of sensing being outputted from your car or using your phone in terms of GPS. There's a signal going back and forth from an array of satellites. There's something in, in all of these observations that's pinging something else and there's a reflection or there is a ping backwards or there is a vibration where whatever is doing that output, you're reading it back. Mm -hmm. So a tricorder, you know, both in terms of 21st century standards and 25th century standards is likely smaller versions of that where I think in next gen you had more of like the little detector in terms of the medical tricorders, they had the little uh, stylus kind of right. thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's probably well, a cylinder thing. that they, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're just like put it up to your temple and they're scanning yeah. your brain or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if this was done just because of medical tricorders versus regular tricorders, but the regular tricorders didn't have that. So you could imagine that if I was taking a tricorder into the field, all of the pinging back and forth that I mentioned, the environment is getting in the way. Um, for about seven years, I was the investigation scientist for, for an orbital spectrometer on Mars that would scan minerals from Martian orbit. So in between the thing that's doing the scanning and the surface of Mars, you had the Martian atmosphere. Yeah. And so you are scanning the atmosphere through your surface scans. And sometimes we would turn the spacecraft on its side and scan the limb of the atmosphere some time ago, but it's something where... The measurements you're making a lot of the time have line of sight so i would want a medical tricorder in the field more often uh, because mm -hmm. you you're kind of reducing that line of sight to the thing you're measuring but basically everything has atoms and molecules right and so being able to to know what they are some of them come from both in terms of the periodic table as well as minerals from from those chemistries and some of them are fully organic and or come from biology. 
And so it's something where when you're scanning these environments, like whether it's a ramen or whether it's a medical tricorder, whatever it is, you're getting the mineralogy, you're getting the elemental chemistry, you're getting the organics. And if you're lucky, the way that everything is actually laid out, you can pinpoint where that biology is. Awesome. Scott, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me on Strange New Worlds. I really enjoyed our conversation and learned a lot. My final request is that, you know, our audience is probably super inspired by what they heard from you today and probably want to go look you up on the internet and follow your work. So where can people find you on the internet? So if you Google JPL Origins and Habitability Lab, our group website is there. Uh, scottpearl.com is my own research site, but that links to both. So you can, you can find me at both. I'm open to answer any questions anyone has. Fantastic. All right. Thanks again for joining me on Strange New Worlds and live long and prosper. Thank you, Mike. That was Dr. Scott Pearl on the science of biosignatures. Something I can't stop thinking about is the way Scott fearlessly learned new fields and disciplines on his journey as an astrobiologist. When he realized that, hey, my current tools and expertise are insufficient for answering the big questions about the universe that I care most about, Scott dared himself to expand his knowledge base. And that can be a really scary process, especially if you've spent years and years of your life just to get a PhD in one subject, only to find out that it's time to start from scratch on another one. But I love this attitude of Scott's because it really takes guts to admit that you don't know everything. And it takes even more courage to fill in those gaps to realize your dreams, when you could just rely on your old trade and plod along answering less exciting questions. Now, whether you're a scientist or something else, I think this is a lesson we can all take away from Scott's journey. Your homework is to take a moment to reflect on your goals and on your skills, and ask yourself if those deepest goals of yours can actually be achieved with your current skills. Be real with yourself. It's okay if the answer is no. And if it is no, then what can you learn to make it so? You can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Pearl, that's Pearl, P-E-R-L, and myself at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I, and this very show at Science of Trek. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, and tell your friends about the show. Next time on Strange New Worlds, we'll have Star Trek author John Jackson Miller talking about his latest Star Trek novel, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, The High Country. Until then, see you out there. But mm-hmm. I just started a visiting professor role at Caltech, and so I'll be. No way. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's so I, cool. I've, yeah, I've wanted to teach for a long while, and JPL's. You know, it's very difficult to mm-hmm. you know not just teach classes, but you know people 
there is time, even though people at JPL think there isn't. So my kind of ultimate goal is to teach a version of Yuck's astrobiology class that, that is more based on biology and life detection in terms mm -hmm. of extreme environments. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'm really happy for you because honestly, Yuck does not like teaching and... <laughs> <laughs> like it needs a little it needs new blood right and you're the perfect person to do that so Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah i'm happy for you and happy for the caltech students who really <laughs> well, deserve a better astrobiology class 